Hello everyone, it's February 7th, 2023. This week we have the details on that failed SSLV launch last August. It's an interesting story involving higher than expected vibrations, accelerometers, something called salvage mode, not savage mode. The rocket didn't do that. But let's get into what it did do and lift off. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So how was your guys' balloon week? Um, that was great, yeah. <laughs> Did you guys see the footage of the balloon getting shot down? Yes. I saw some images. I don't know if I saw like live footage, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of footage. Incredibly high res stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's there's a lot of, you know, cell phone footage. because they sh- So for everybody in the future and maybe everybody who isn't US centric like we are, um, there was um, a Chinese spy balloon that floated across the US this week. Um, and they, the U S shot it down once it, um, made it across the, the U S from West to East and went off of our Eastern seaboard. I believe this was off the coast of Carolina and yeah, so they, they shot it down over the ocean. And so there's a lot of footage of like Carolinians walking outside with their, uh, with their cell phone and, taking a video from the ground but yeah then dennis like you said there's that really high res telephoto um yeah chris in the chat says the chinese don't agree it's a spy balloon they say that it's a civilian vehicle and no it's not it's exactly what we would expect them to say and it's that's not that's not true that's exactly what the u.s would say if they got caught floating a, a surveillance balloon over another country like you guys also know like everybody was like shocked that that this was happening. But you guys know how common this is, right? I figured it was common actually, but everyone yeah. was shocked and I thought, well, then I guess I'm wrong. So, <laughs> Oh, see, yeah, that that's the fundamental difference between the two of us. Uh, you <laughs> encounter evidence that you may be wrong and you assume that you're wrong. I encounter evidence that I may be wrong and I assume everyone else is wrong. But it turns out I was correct this time. And so, yeah, actually this is common and um, there were three balloons, the Pentagon confirmed or Forbes said that the Pentagon confirmed that uh, three spy balloons had been launched by China uh, during the last presidential administration and that they were uh, instructed to not make it public, to like cover it up. And I assume that that probably would have happened this time, uh, but I guess it was more visible. Or maybe maybe they got orders to go ahead and you know let people know what this thing is. Um, mm-hmm. And that... You know, maybe that even happened before civilians started seeing it. But, uh, but Dennis, you, you're kind of familiar with with flying balloons at high altitude, right? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, last year I mentioned uh, to you guys, maybe it was before recording, but uh, some students from our group uh, had these Pico balloons, and they basically sent up like a little chip, and it's just a transmitting beacon. And uh, a, a couple of them actually circumvented the globe, and one of them definitely passed over. Circumnavigated, yes. Circumventing, <laughs> circumventing the globe. What would that be? Just kind of like going. That'd be going. That's going up to space. Yeah, that's what yeah. orbit is. Is it circumventing the globe? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No. Thank you. Circum, circumnavigating the globe. Yeah. And and they and they passed over China during during part of that as well. But um. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. This this whole thing seems kind of crazy and bizarre yeah. to me. But, uh, I, I it didn't seem super crazy to me. Like there was a lot of fuss, but it just it was kind of like, oh, this is an interesting thing that's happening that we're actually getting to see. The 
SSLV launch failure investigation has been completed. So this is a, a, about a partial failure of a launch back in August. I guess you would consider it that maybe. Um, they had some upper stage issues. Did you say partial failure? I mean, well, I mean, they didn't okay, put the right. payload well, into orbit, so I call that a failure. Good point. Yeah, I, I know what you mean by part. the way you're saying partial. It wasn't yeah. a catastrophic, yeah. you know, nine engine shutdown after right. T plus right. 10 seconds. Exactly. But it... It was a total, totally useless for the payloads. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it was a partial launch failure, but a complete mission failure. <laughs> How about this? They nailed the they nailed the apogee. Yeah, right. yeah. And like the thing is, this was the first flight of SSLV, so you know, they, it, it's not a worthless flight. They they validated their launch vehicle up to a point. So, like you said, this was uh, back in August. Um, and what we knew on the day was that it was a successful ascent. Um, and then when they went to, uh, ignite the engine on their fourth stage, which is called the velocity trimming module or, uh, VTM, the engine started and then shut down real quick. Um, and the launch footage, uh, or the, the launch live stream had footage from the vehicle and you could actually see the payload separating, uh, from the vehicle. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> that shot came just like a split second after everybody in the room started clapping. I'm presuming they were clapping because the, you know, ignition call was made like, Oh, fourth stage has started up and everybody's like clapping. And then suddenly, Oh, there goes the payload. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot of information. Um, I saw some people say that the engine uh, ignited and then shut down after a hundred milliseconds. I didn't see uh, any screens in the in the stream? Maybe they like summarized it later on in the stream, but I didn't didn't pay too much attention. But the point is, we didn't we didn't know that much. Um, the vehicle uh, was placed, or the the payload was placed into a seventy six by three hundred and fifty six kilometer orbit. Um, it turns out it was just fifty six meters per second short of the required orbital velocity. Now, what's interesting is that the failure actually had nothing to do with the fourth stage. The failure had to do with the third stage, but the failure happened long before anybody watching the stream uh, <laughs> could have realized what what had happened. So the the failure happened when the third stage separated from the second stage. We would call that third stage separation for most launch vehicles, um, but SSLV refers to that as second stage separation. So they are working from the aspect of the payload and looking backwards and going, oh, there goes the second stage by this is second stage separation. Um, when that happened, uh, there were some pretty good vibrations that went through the vehicle. They were uh, stronger vibrations and they lasted for longer uh, than the ground testing uh, suggested they would. These vibrations... Uh, saturated the accelerometers on the third stage. And what's kind of interesting is it didn't saturate them all at once. It saturated them one by one. Um, and so that really exacerbated sort of a, a metric called residue. There are some different terms that'll be used for this, like metric, but I think residue is a good one. You might say like residual error or something. Um, but basically it's it's a difference between uh, the values reported by each of the sensors. Uh, there, there are six accelerometers in this particular avionics package. So anyway, these vibrations um, saturated 
the accelerometers one by one caused a high residue value that lasted for, it sounds like two seconds or longer. And what's crazy here is that this all comes down to how the data is being processed, I believe. Um, I'm assuming that the accelerometers are reporting instantaneous data. Maybe they have some sort of like uh, data smoothing filter um, that they apply before they report the values. Maybe that filter is entirely contained within the control software. Um, but basically the the excitation, the, the that's the word that the uh, that ISRO uses is the excitation. But the, these high vibrations that were enough to overwhelm the sensors uh, lasted for about 10 milliseconds. And that kind of blew out the sensors for a good two seconds. So somewhere there's some filtering happening that that was smoothing that maximum value out over a longer period of time. Um, they knew that they were going to have some pretty uh, some pretty good vibrations happening, but they didn't expect them to be this strong, but they also didn't expect them to last for 10 milliseconds. They expected them to last for two to three milliseconds. Um, that's what they saw during testing. And, you know, it's vibrations. And so, like, I think what happened is they hung these two stages up by, uh, uh, by some cabling and fired the separation system and the cables just happened to soak up enough of that uh, momentum uh, to dampen those vibrations out. Um, it, it's really one of those things like, what are you going to do? Unless you have access to free fall, you can't really test this in the real world. You can simulate it, but that's about it. So anyway, these sensors maxed out. Uh, the guidance system decided that this was the worst thing that had ever happened to it and decided to move into salvage mode, which is a really cool name uh, and a really cool mode to include. Um, I think most vehicles are just going to try to do their best and, and cope with missing data in different ways. But I don't think I've ever heard of anybody naming an entire mode salvage mode. It's kind of cool. So salvage mode uh, was entered after the third stage separated from the second stage. For the rest of the flight, they were flying in salvage mode. And salvage mode in this case entails flying open loop they say, okay, our sensors are uh, are giving us bad data. We're going to completely ignore all of the sensors. And we're just going to go uh, run the engines for as long as we think we're supposed to based on uh, the qualifications of the engines. Like how much velocity do I get by having the throttle at this point for this long? Okay, let's just dead reckon. Dead reckoning usually involves using accelerometers though. So it's really, it's really just, you know, open loop flight. All of the stages that or the the third stage uh underperformed. Apparently the first and second stages also underperformed. And I guess that it sounds like that underperformance might not have been included in the open loop uh calculations. They said it was this cumulative underperformance by all the stages. So anyway, when they when they get up to um third stage shutdown, they're going slower than they should have. Um, and the vehicle was programmed to, if it's in salvage mode, to not use the VTM engine. Um, they had seen that using the VTM could be a deterrent to salvage operations in some cases. Um, I'm assuming that's on flights where the stage is actually overperformed or maybe performed close to what they were supposed to. And then adding the extra velocity winds up putting you into too high of an orbit. Um, which also isn't great. 
And like that, right. That's, that's a pretty fair assumption to make. Like if we think that we can do this open loop uh, mode and put ourselves in the right place, why would we play or why would we not go far enough? Like it just, it seems to make sense to me. And so anyway, yeah, that, that's, that's what actually happened. They, uh, the engines underperformed, the rocket didn't know that they underperformed and the rocket reentered. Now, what's really cool is that ISRO published um, a really nice failure diagnostic report. Um, I, when I went through it, Dennis, you you actually found it. I looked for it and I couldn't find it. And Dennis threw the link in the show notes. Um, and I, I'm really happy reading this because, you know, in my um, egocentric Truman Show brain, they've never published a failure report like this. And this is the first time that they're publishing it just for us. And of course, I know that's not true. They don't, <laughs> nobody at ISRO uh, gives a crap about our reporting. Uh, if, you know, reporting in quotes, nobody cares about what this podcast is doing. I'm sure this isn't the first failure report that they've published, but it just, it, that's how excited I was. I was just like, oh, yes, Christmas. Hmm. Let's go look yeah. at this. Well, it, it does seem like the new guy, uh, Samanth, is perhaps being more open than his predecessor as far as uh, giving out information to the public and everything. That'd be but, cool. That'd be yeah. really cool. So anyway, this report not only includes their failure analysis uh, or a summary of their failure analysis, it also describes the corrective actions that they're going to take. And this is really cool because there wasn't that much additional information that I got out of the report on the failure, the causation of the failure versus all of the all the articles that I'd read, what was in there that I hadn't really seen anywhere else was all the corrective actions. People kind of mentioned them, but it was like, they're doing a couple of corrective actions, including this one thing. I'm like, no, tell me all the things. So <laughs> first they are switching to a new stage separation system between the second and third stages. Right now they are using a circular expanding bellow system. And uh, I will put a photo in the show notes. Um, I got this photo from a patent. Uh, and so this is not likely to be the exact system that they're using, but it's a fantastic illustration um, of what this bellow system is. So the idea is the, the circular is the shape of the outside of the rocket, right? The circumference. So you got this ring and on one side, the ring is a yoke. Uh, so like two concentric rings, right? Like a, like a Y shape that wraps all the way around. And on the other side, it's just a single ring that fits into that circular slot uh, made by the yoke. And um, at the bottom of the yoke is some sort of expanding rubber thing. So think uh, a bicycle inner tube. And um, you put the slot of the upper stage into the yoke of the lower stage and you drive some rivets through uh, to keep them in place. And then the, the bellow, when you need to go ahead and, and separate these two structures, the bellows are inflated with gas. I'm assuming it's, you know, like a chemical gas generator, like what's in an airbag. And that puts enough force uh, between the two like the inside of the yoke and the bottom of the flange or whatever, but it, it puts enough force that they can actually shear uh, rivets or bolts. What's nice is that once those rivets or bolts have sheared, the bellows continues to inflate and pushes the two structures apart. It's actually a pretty elegant system, real simple. We have very, very reliable gas generators, right? Like we put them in airbags and we, you know, 
trust people's lives with them. So it, it seems pretty cool. Unfortunately, this mechanism uh, is pretty intense. It's not the smoothest uh, separation uh, mechanism that you could come up with. I mean, you're having to shear bolts, right? Or shear, shear rivets. You, you know that that's going to cause a pretty good shock. So what they're using instead is a Marmon band, um, which they've are, they're already using one to separate the third stage from the fourth stage. And so I'm assuming they have a couple of them lying around and they can just switch them out real quick and they don't have to do too much like engineering work to actually get that done. And then a, a Marmon band is, is pretty familiar. It's a simpler version of a, a clamp band where instead of having like mechanical clamps that can open and close it's just um flanges from the first and second stage kind of come together and they have um sort of a pokey out bit where they join and then you wrap a band around that pokey out bit with clamps that holds the two pokey out bits together when you need to separate them you cut the band and let it go flying away and then you have pushers that separate the two stages really really simple uh pretty clean uh, lower forces involved, that should do uh, 90% of the work to solve this issue. They're also uh, working on their software. Um, they're uh, implementing, quote, a more realistic approach uh, to interpreting their accelerometer data. Um, this is both um, relaxing the logic uh, of like how strict they are uh, interpreting uh, these residue values. They're, they're going to allow... Uh, the logic to handle transients a little better. They're also, it sounds like when they have multiple failures detected, it sounds like they're actually going to enlarge their moving average window. Maybe that's how they're handling the transits. Maybe that's in addition. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but it sounds like they actually have implemented logic. If there is more than one failure, let's interpret this data a little differently. Kind of cool. So th there uh, was another hardware uh, modification that they mentioned they're doing some structural work um, to decrease resonance uh, at the frequencies that they observed. And I'm assuming that that's probably just like welding uh, a weight in the right place to uh, dampen um, one resonant direction. It's kind of interesting that they decided to do that because they're changing the separation system. That should solve the problem. Um, but I guess the th if the thing is going to ring at that frequency, it's going to ring in that frequency at some point, let's take this as an opportunity to learn that it can ring in this in this oscillation mode, and let's just get rid of that because we know about it. Uh, it seems pretty prudent. Uh, they also are changing some of the software, so they're uh, implementing quote a more realistic approach to interpreting accelerometer data. I like that. Um, they're changing the logic. Uh, so they can handle uh, transients in their residue metric better. Um, and then I'm not sure if this is how they're doing that or if this is an addition to that, but they're actually, they actually stated specifically that they are lengthening their moving average window when they detect multiple failures. Kind of a cool like view into the way that they're, um, that they're solving this. A, a fairly high amount of detail that I was surprised by. Uh, let's see, what else are they doing in software? During Ascent, they collect data from uh, NAVIC or NAVIC, that's their uh, satellite navigation constellation. Um, and, and they're already using that during normal, during nominal flight um, to correct accelerometer drift. 
Um, but apparently salvage mode decided to just not pay attention to any data at all, which, I mean, maybe there's a system where that makes sense, right? If it's a network issue, maybe if some data is bad, all data is unreliable, but it seems a little uh, short-sighted to ignore uh, basically your GPS data uh, if you don't have accelerometers. Or, you know, maybe that excel- the satellite data was only being incorporated in the GPS uh, float correction loop. And so now they're saying, okay, well, let's also suck that into the main loop uh, in, in this circumstance. But anyway, so they're going to be paying attention to SatNav data. Um, they are also not, they're not going to resort to their open loop mode until their uh, nav IC data is unavailable for 10 seconds or more. Um, so they're they're really going to be trying their hardest not to to go to open loop, but they're not saying we're never going to ignore what looks like bad data. Um, and then the last thing is they decided to activate the VTM if they get up to their coast phase or you know stage separation, and they're in salvage mode. They've changed their flight rules. They're actually going to light up the engine on the VTM rather than. Um, letting the thing deorbit, and you know maybe that makes sense. Let's fail to a higher orbit rather than fail to not an orbit. Um, anyway, uh, they sound pretty optimistic uh, that they can get all these changes implemented pretty quickly. Um, they might be ready to fly again as soon as next week, um, but Isra themselves uh, only said that they're um, going to be flying before April by the by the end of the quarter. So hopefully. Uh, they will be back up in the air soon. If anybody from ESRO is listening, thank you guys so much for publishing uh, your uh, <laughs> report. It was very good reading. And uh, let's please make this a normal thing to do in the world because <laughs> it's fun and data knowledge belongs to everybody. Like, let's just make this everybody's knowledge. It's pretty pretty cool yeah. this time, though. Yeah, no, it was great. Very detailed. Yeah. And I learned, um, I never heard of a saturated accelerometer, but makes sense um and i assume by that of course what you mean is that it's the you know vibrations were like beyond the ability of the accelerometer to measure those jack um, it up structurally <laughs> accelerations yeah. yeah it was peaky yeah exactly and it seems like a pretty i mean all things considered a pretty easy fix right get away from this bellows crap and add more kind of redundancy i suppose yep Okay, so let's do three short and sweet this week as usual. Ben, what is the first? All right, NASA is confident in A1's software. That's good, good headline, right? NASA's avionics and software team finished their initial analysis of data from Artemis 1, and they're happy with the results. No faults were seen in either hardware or software, and new Block 1 and Block 1B releases are already being tested. Uh, NASA Spaceflight posted a good overview of their guidance techniques and the data that they obtained during the flight, and we'll have a link in the show notes. And then next up, Peregrine has a new destination. NASA and Astrobotic announced that the upcoming CLIPS mission to the moon featuring the Peregrine lander will not be touching down in Lacus Mortis. Instead, the destination was changed to a region along the northeast edge of Oceanus Procolarum, or the Ocean of Storms, on the western part of the moon's near side. Targeting this new region will facilitate the future lunar vice mission that aims to understand why that particular region appears to be rich in silica. So far, no update on the Peregrine's launch date has been announced. Finally, Perseverance completes sample depot on Mars. 
JPL recently announced that Perseverance has successfully placed its 10th and final tube on the Martian surface for future collection by another spacecraft as part of Mars Sample Return. The first sample depot on another world, the tubes were dropped in a specific pattern and include the first sample, Robion, which was collected in August of 2021 and is an atmospheric witness sample with no rocky material, as well as Crosswind Lake, the most recently collected sample as of this recording, taken in December of 2022. The other half of the samples collected by the rover will remain inside Perseverance as the primary set, with the depot serving as a backup. And I uh, uh, wanted to include in this a uh, uh, something I hadn't seen before, but Ben, you showed me this from Reddit, a rare photograph of the Milky Way viewed from Mars, uh, captured by the Viking 1 spacecraft in 1976. It's just something incredible, and you really got to see for it yourself. Um, it'll be in our show notes. All right, moving on to this week in space life history. Uh, we have, I believe, six winners. Uh, we have the Greek Henry Joshua Steele, Cy Kyle, Leon Running Man, and Hydrek. So congratulations, and everyone gets full credit. Uh, everyone guessed the reason for uh, the clue, which was uh, paratrooper penguin or penguin paratrooper. I don't have it in front of me, but it was one of those two. Um, I think it was penguin paratrooper. I think it was penguin paratrooper, yeah. yeah. And yeah, so the event was on February 11th, 2015. It was the launch of the Intermediate Experimental Vehicle or the IXV. I mean, it should be the IEV, but they capitalize the X, so it's the IXV. Um, so yeah, this is a cool spacecraft. I don't know if we've discussed it much before. Uh, it's basically an experimental spacecraft, as the name suggests. It was developed by ESA, and yeah, launched not too long ago, really. Again, this is another one of these events that happened within the time that this show's been around, so I'm assuming we must have talked about it, but I don't remember. <laughs> this would have been just a couple months after we began the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess just a little bit of a backstory. We have to take a look at Hermes, which is another European developed small but reusable spacecraft. Uh, that was canceled in the early 90s, but ESA still wanted some kind of an orbital reentry vehicle uh, that I guess they could call their own. I don't know what other like motivation there is. I mean, it's something that seems like a valid reason to me because I've spoken about this before, how I think that ESA should, you know, mm -hmm. actually, I guess, just pursue that. But instead, at that time, they decided to go with using mostly the Russian assets as well as NASA. But yeah, so what followed from Hermes uh, was actually this concept. And this was conceived under the FLPP, which is uh, the Future Launcher Preparatory Program. And this was actually meant to be a successor to the Ariane 5. I don't know why the Ariane 5. Um, specifically, it was going to launch on a Vega rocket because it sort of functions as like a reusable upper stage. You can sort of think of it in those terms, but it would have to be launched aboard the Vega don't know why Vega and not Ariane 5. Uh, Vega is, you know, pretty much all solids except for the final stages. Um, perhaps it's a little bit more reliable for that reason. But I always think of the Ariane 5 as being the like more advanced launch vehicle, which it is. And so you would want to put something advanced on it. Uh, but yeah, this is actually for Vega. If this were successful, and spoiler alert, it was, the next step would actually be something called Space Rider. And that's actually due to launch next year on a Vega C. So it's, it's, it's going to be in the last quarter of next year. So who knows? it'll probably be pushed to 2025 yeah so they're still pursuing this whole reusable vehicle okay. uh, dream that europe has had for a long time now so um specifically this is a lifting body design uh not a winged vehicle so that's one big difference it kind of looks like a space shuttle but except it's just it's just a lot smaller and doesn't have wings and so really i'm just talking about the whole color scheme you know it has those black tiles on the bottom and it's kind of white on top and so it kind of looks like a shuttle, um, but a shuttle with no wings. So why a lifting body and no wings? Um, that's largely due to 
the weight limits and the constraints of the Vega payload fairing. There are some other big reasons too, uh, mainly to do with the fact that a wing type design is just much more complex, much more expensive. Um, and that's not the goal here. This is just more of an experimental pathfinder type of a mission. And really you don't need a winged spacecraft for what they're trying to do because you want to be able to bring something back down and you want a little bit of cross range and that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have wings you know, i mean that's really i guess just for landing on a runway like the space shuttle now that i think about it i guess that's the only reason right but if you're willing to splash in the ocean then you don't need wings either that's kind of how i read that but uh yeah speaking of the dimensions of the vehicle um it's five meters in length 2.2 meters in width and 1.5 meters in height so not very big and it weighs approximately two tons and that's metric. It had a lift to drag ratio of 0.7 at hypersonic speeds. I don't know what it is at lower speeds. And it has a fairly steep angle of attack, somewhere around like 40 degrees. And the lift to drag ratio can change as the speeds change and the density of the atmosphere changes. I know that a dragon at certain points is about 0.18. So it's definitely much higher than a dragon, but it's nowhere near shuttle, which is like 1.1 at hypersonic speeds. And then it gets better as it comes further down. But yeah, 0.7 is not like it's not exactly like gliding, if you know what I mean. It's still hmm. pretty much falling, just at a better angle. Controlled falling. <laughs> yeah, it's a much better controlled fall. Are we really not going to say falling with style? Okay, falling with style, <laughs> sure. And it has lots of sensors. So again, this is to, I mean, this whole vehicle, the whole point of this launch was to gather as much data as possible, specifically on the vehicle. Um, so it has like 37 pressure sensors, 194 temperature sensors, 48 strain gauges, and it has an infrared camera. Um, and that's to take readings of the heat tiles. And the sensor data was was both transmitted in real time when possible, which wasn't possible for a whole lot of time. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And it was also stored for transmission once the downlink was possible, once the transmission was possible. And it also had a flight recorder stored on board as well. And that's just for post-flight retrieval if something went wrong and they couldn't, you know, like downlink the data. As for controlling reentry and why it's called a penguin paratrooper, it looks like a penguin. So basically, if it doesn't have wings, it has to have something. So it has four thrusters at the base and it has two flaps at the base as well. So it kind of looks like a penguin with its two feet sticking out and just like if you watch somebody like bungee jump, it, it, it's more like a bungee jumping penguin. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess paratroopers works too. But yeah, these two flaps are powered by two batteries um, that actually elongate and contract the EMUs, which are the uh, electromechanical actuators. So basically, you know, you just uh, change the length of uh, these two little pistons and it kind of you know actuates those flaps the four thrusters which are located at the bottom or the i guess you might call it like the back of the spacecraft um they're kind of pointed off in four different directions yeah so there, there's no it's not axial at all no because there is a stage that's attached to it actually i should have specified that and i didn't even put that in the notes but this thing i mean this is just meant for one partial orbit and then it comes right back down for the majority of the orbit it's actually attached to an upper stage and that's what does most of the maneuvering. Then from there, it actually detaches, and that's when it does its deorbit, um, by which point that upper stage has already put it on a trajectory where it will deorbit because its perigee is actually within the Earth's atmosphere. So technically, it's on an orbit, but it's not one that it can sustain, and that's how they were able to bring it back. But yeah, it doesn't have anything to actually like maneuver too much or deorbit with, or rather these thrusters are for orienting the spacecraft, but not for like deorbiting or doing anything like that. It does not have that kind of a capability. So most of the time they're going to be firing in pairs to rotate the spacecraft, uh, like opposing pairs. You might use opposing pairs to rotate the spacecraft clockwise or counterclockwise, and then you might fire the thrusters on the left to push the back end to the right. 
And you might fire the thrusters right. on the bottom to push the back end up. So that's yeah, how you yaw, how you pitch. The three axes would be the three rotational axes, no translation. Mm -hmm. Right. So three axis control and yaw control on reentry. Yeah. And um, these thrusters use the, and I put this in the notes just uh, just so we could, I guess, like refresh our memories because we talked about it a few weeks ago. It uses um, decomposition of hydrazine monopropellant on a heated catalyst bed with redundant heaters. So remember we were talking about mm. what kind of propellants require catalyst beds and heaters and if they need them or not. Well, this one, this is a hydrazine monoprop and it uses heaters and apparently they're very necessary because it does have redundant heaters on that catalyst bed. So mm. I thought that was kind of interesting to put that in there. So and yeah, and then just one last thing about the thrusters, they are fed from a single titanium tank in a blowdown mode. Now the TPS, the thermal protection system. So the inner body, the structural elements are carbon fiber reinforced polymer panels, and those provide rigidity for the vehicle. So that's like the inner structure, the windward side, right? So this is like the black shuttle looking side of it that has a bunch of little tabs on it, and they are carbon fiber reinforced silicon carbide. They are lightweight and resistant to ablation, which is the main reason why they were chosen. I think, um, again, like weight is a big deal here because uh. The Vega can only transport, I think, uh, about 2.5 tons, and this is 2 tons. So they needed to make it light. These panels are fixed with super alloy bolts and flexible standoffs so that the panels aren't actually like physically touching or they are at one point, which is the standoffs. The maximum reentry temperatures are about 1,700 degrees Celsius, so pretty hot. And then on the leeward side of the structure, um, it is made from an ablative TPS. So this actually is the ablative section, believe it or not, and yet looks kind of like the shuttle. These panels are actually glued to each other with this uh, like epoxy-based adhesive, and then gaps are filled with um, the same type of stuff with cork granules, which I thought was interesting. So there's another instance of cork being used for <laughs> thermal protection as a yeah as an ablator yeah it seems to be it seems to pop up more often than you would think in spaceflight now the parachutes these are interesting so the parachutes were actually kind of like off the shelf not like commercial off the shelf i guess um but since this was a demonstration mission and since it was being done on a budget they needed to find shoots that they didn't have to design themselves so what they went with um i'll start with the pilot shoot so this was something that was adapted from uh the nasa mars missions and from there that pulls out a drogue shoot which is 4.3 meters in diameter um, and that's based on on the F-117 fighter jet chutes, which are used for aerobraking. So yeah, they just took it off an F-117. And uh, this is um, for stabilizing it during the transonic part of the reentry. So this gets it down to about Mach 0.3. This is at an altitude of about 10 kilometers. Uh, from there, the first, I guess, of two main chutes is deployed, which is 7.4 meters in diameter. This one's based on an F-111 crew escape capsule chute. So this is something I didn't even know that fighter jets could do. I actually didn't know this. So, I um, mean, I put a little image just so you could look at it because I thought it was kind of cool. So basically you have a fighter jet and if you need to eject the whole cabin, which it was deemed necessary for this particular vehicle, which before then just had like the standard ejection seats. So you actually eject a whole section of the fighter jet, which is the part that contains the crew. And then it comes down on this parachute, which is kind of crazy. I didn't know that was a thing. That is cool. Maybe it's common with fighter jets more than I realized, but... This is the only one that I've ever heard of where you have to take the whole cabin with you. And I'm not sure why that is. I think it's just because of the altitudes and velocities are not survivable yeah, um, if you're outside the thing. Yeah, and our, our resident pilot pointing out that these are those were not common. <laughs> yeah, so that's that shoot. The final shoot at five kilometers altitude, Mach 0.12, that's when the third of the actual shoots deployed. And uh, this is actually the same shoot that was used on Curiosity. So it's a 29.7 meter diameter ring sail. 
the largest parachute I think that's ever been uh, made, I think. <laughs> um, uh, so huge is 10% reefed, and then it goes to full deployment once it approaches the ground, and that's just to make it a little bit easier on the deceleration. But yeah, and then it splashes down, and uh, that's when the vehicles go out and recover it. So once the inertial measurement has detected splashdown, uh, the flotation system is activated. So this is basically just four big airbags, and they're kind of oriented more towards the top of the spacecraft, and that's to keep the bottom down. They're each uh, 0.8 cubic meters and deployed by independent gas elements, and they're designed to stay afloat for 48 hours. So um, if it takes two days to get to it and recover it, then these things have you covered. So it's not necessarily going to be a quick recovery, or at least they were anticipating that that would be the case. And so, yeah, that's what was supposed to happen, and that's what did happen. So I kind of like structured it like that. So basically, the launch uh, <laughs> happened, as I said, on the 15th, um, it, and it hit an apogee of 412 kilometers um, at a 5.4 degree inclination. Um, and like I said, this was technically an orbit, but um, it was still considered suborbital. Uh, since it did intersect the atmosphere, and that's what brought it back down. Uh, the second half of the orbit was uh, largely done without any tracking or any data communication because there just weren't any ground stations. So you had the first one, which was in Libreville, which is in French Guiana, and then the second one was located in Kenya, and those were the only two points during which they could actually track it and get any telemetry back down. From there, it was just kind of blind, and they had to wait until it was basically outside of its little plasma cocoon on, on its way back down. Like that was the first transmission right. they got back um, from that point. So that uh, tracking was picked back up one hour and 22 minutes into the flight by the tracking vessel. Yeah, so it came in at a speed of 7.5 kilometers per second, six meters per second just before splashdown, which was successful. They recovered it. Um, easy peasy, really. Um, so it was a very successful <laughs> mission. The total development cost, which I wanted to point out, the cost of this whole project was 150 million euros, which is really good, I think, considering what they were able to accomplish. That's not bad. That's like, I mean, I can't imagine a similar project happening here that would cost as little as that for a vehicle like this. Um, so successful mission, and it did lay the groundwork for, uh, like I said, the next thing, which is called Space Rider. And uh, hopefully we'll see that launch next year. I don't know if we will, but within the next couple of years, most likely. And so this kind of puts them on a path for a reusable upper stage. Does this have any relationship at all with, is it called SUSE? The, the ESA's recently unveiled kind of reusable space plane that a lot of people think is, I've been saying lately that it's vaporware. Well, this looks like it's being proposed as something that can carry people and uh that is not something that this particular space rider yeah they're not i think that's the key difference anyway yep so that's uh that is the ixv the paratrooper penguin successful mission and that's your this week in space by history all right thank you david um next week is going to be the 14th to the 20th of february uh dennis do you have a clue for us i do next week in 1986 more computers more beds Oh, that's the inflection you're going to do? Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, uh, send us your guess. Shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. That's going to break real soon, folks. Uh, Elon's decided that there is no more free API access. So this is a good time to mention that you can also email us, uh, info at theorbitalmechanics.com. That requires a little bit of work on my part because I got to forward it because I don't want to expose the actual email address that I forward it to. <laughs> so I do it by hand. But the best way to do it 
the way that gets you confirmation that your submission has been accepted is go to our Discord and use the This Week SF channel. You can get to our Discord by going to uh, the orbitalmechanics.com slash Discord, and that'll get you an invite. And yeah, Discord's cool. Come hang out on Discord and submit your guests on Discord. If you decide that you want to use this last week uh, to submit your guests on uh, Twitter, use the hashtag ThisWeekSF to make sure we get it. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right. So then uh, let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got five of those this week. So fairly busy week. All right. So first up is a progress going to ISS. This is progress MS-22 uh, or 83P, depending on whether you're NASA or Roscosmos. Uh as always, it's going to be flying on a Soyuz 21A out of Baikonur. The launch time is currently scheduled for Thursday, February 9th at 06.15 hours UTC. You can also catch that one on NASA TV. That's uh, also going to be on Thursday, but it's at 1 a.m. Eastern time uh, is when the coverage starts. The launch is scheduled at 1.15 a.m. Eastern time. And then Friday... February 10th, we've got a mission that is very related to the top of the show. Yeah. <laughs> it is the uh, SSLV second developmental f- flight, and hopefully this one uh, won't be jacking up the accelerometers quite as much. <laughs> and so uh, this one is also, you know, being the small satellite launch vehicle, going to take a uh, uh, one kind of major payload, in this case EOS-7, which is an Earth observation satellite, as well as uh, two smaller ones, uh, including one from a, a U.S. firm uh, called Janus-1. And so it will be again Friday, February 10th with a launch window at 0330 to 0730 UTC uh, flying out of the Satish Dhawan Space Center in Siharakota, India. And good luck to them. Uh, and then after that, on the 11th, we have the coverage of uh, the docking of the ISS Progress 83 cargo craft to the International Space Station. So the coverage will begin at 3 a.m. Eastern Time and the docking itself is scheduled at 347. So kind of early if you're on the east coast um and even earlier or later i guess depending on your frame of reference if you're on the west coast but i guess if you're in europe you can totally watch that so yeah check that one out after that is uh, a starlink launch um spacex just did two starlinks back to back and that looks like they might be going for a third one uh this is starlink group five four um, they have not confirmed uh, the the launch, and the only source that I can see is uh, spaceflightnow.com, uh, and they, they don't cite their sources. They just put the, the times up. So this one may or may not be launching. Uh, if it does launch, uh, it will be on Saturday, February 11th. Uh, we do not have a time uh, to guess at right now. But yeah, sad, Saturday the 11th. And rounding us out, a very exciting potential maiden flight of the H3 vehicle. And so this JAXA vehicle, we've been waiting for a while and it's been slipping, but now hopefully it will launch. And so it'll be flying specifically in the H322S configuration, where the twos are referring to having two upper stage engines, uh, two strap-on boosters, and the S means it's using a shorter fairing. And so it's... uh, payload for this maiden flight will be the ALOS-3 or ALOS-3 satellite. This is a chonky three-ton Earth observation satellite that's used for kind of the usual 
culprits, uh, disaster monitoring, um, cartography, regional observation, etc. And so it will be taking that to Sun Synchronous, hopefully on Monday, February 13th, with a window from 0137.55 to 0144.15 UTC, flying out of Yoshinobu Launch Complex in Panagashima, Japan. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time for us to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Mike, Colin, Deathkin, Stash I Am, Stanley for you, Maritz, Emery, and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.